First Peter chapter 4. Just by way of reminder as we begin this morning, you know, the Scripture has been put together by the Holy Spirit. And in Second Peter, uh, he writes about that men were carried along by the Spirit who wrote uh, the Scripture um, down. And as with all of the passages, they have a specific design. And so sometimes when you come to certain texts or certain books, certain letters by some of the writers, there are themes that run, th- run through them. And if you're not careful... We might go, why do you keep repeating this over and over? And we have to trust that as the Spirit spoke to Peter and Paul and, and there was repetition in the midst of even some of these small letters, it was for a dynamic purpose so that you and I would understand what's there. And so um, as with all of it, we want, to, we want to embrace the themes of Scripture and we're going to come to one of those again today. Uh, Peter is going to, in this uh, five-chapter epistle that he has here, he's going to have some last thoughts on suffering. Um, he has had much thoughts on suffering as we've walked through this. It has been a, um, probably the most dominant theme um, through this. And if you'll look with me, I just want to, by way of review, just kind of see where we've been because we come today and next week. Um, we're going to have the last thoughts on suffering Part one and two, okay, because we can't do all of them in part one. There's just too much stuff there, and so we'll do part one today. But these are the last words that he will use. Uh, But look at uh, chapter one, verse six and seven. And this is what he writes here. Um, First of all, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 2, verse 18 now. Here's the next place that he speaks about that. It's in the context of servants and masters. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then verses 21 through 24, he gives us this great picture about the glory of Jesus and suffering and the victory that comes. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Go to chapter 3, verse 13 now. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, he won't read all that, but he just read verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same manner, the same way of thinking. And now we come to chapter 4, 12 through 19. They are his last thoughts on this theme of suffering, and we will take today 12 through 14, and the next week we will take 15 uh, through 19. So as we're, earing, <clears throat> as we're nearing the end of this epistle, and we're nearing the end of his teaching on how does a Christian deal with suffering, I want to make sure that we understand this when I mention suffering. He's not talking about suffering connected to sickness. 
He's talking about suffering that's connected to faith, that you are being persecuted. That's been the dominant theme. There's suffering that's connected to that because of the physical reality of life. But his theme has been to these believers who are suffering under the heavy hand of Nero and the persecution because of their faith in Christ. And so I want to just touch on something that I think we haven't really touched on that I think is important. He's going to come today and he's going to say, don't be surprised that this has come to you. Which indicates that there was some surprise to the recipients of this letter that because they've come to faith, there must have been some kind of idea that things were going to go better now that they had a relationship with Christ. And so there's some wrestling with them that there was persecution that was coming. So he's telling them, don't be surprised. And when you think about it for a moment, he's writ- he, I think he predominantly wrote this letter to Gentile believers, although there's some aspects in it where you can tell that there's an aspect written to Jews who have become uh, believers in Jesus as the Messiah and trusted Him. But the, the dominant theme through this is that He has written this to Gentile believers. And for them, this would be a new concept. The Jews, going way, way back as far as we can think, have been a persecuted people. So this persecution, now that they've come to faith in Christ... For a Jew, this would not be anything new. They had always been a persecuted people. So likely for the Gentiles, who used to worship Greek and Roman gods, or just pure pagans didn't worship anything, maybe just emperor worship, now they've come to Christ, and this persecution would be a new thing to them because they wouldn't have experienced it before. So as Peter writes this, he's writing most likely to Gentile believers who've come to faith in Christ. They've rejected emperor worship. They've rejected their Roman God system. Now they've come to Jesus. They're a follower of Jesus. And it has cost them a lot. And they have been under persecution. When the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, it came to life under the arm of the Roman Empire. And from AD 30 all the way to AD 311, somewhere in that neighborhood, the church was under a lot of persecution. Sometimes it was very... Uh, It was kind of empire-wide or it was regional-wide. Sometimes it was just persecution directly uh, in a certain area that was directed to believers in that. But for about 300 years, first 300 years, the church was under a lot of persecution from the emperors. There were 54 Roman emperors in in between that time from AD 30 um, to AD 311. Twelve of those emperors were just very brutal to the church and very brutal to Christians. There was a lot of murder beheadings, hangings, crucifixions, burning at the stake, boiling in oil. There were all kinds of things um, that took place. The worst of those 12 was a guy named Decius, and his persecution was empire-wide. As Peter writes to these believers, they are living under persecution under Nero. Nero was not someone who wore diapers in regard to persecution. He was an evil man, hated Christianity. Tacitus was a Roman historian, and he wrote about Nero. He was actually one of Nero's uh, contemporaries, and they were rivals of one another. Tacitus was not a favorable person about Nero, and so he wrote many, many negative things about it. And I want to just share with us this morning, because I think it frames for us why this theme has been dominant in 1 Peter. Listen to what Tacitus writes. He said, there was a strong rumor that Nero was behind the burning of Rome. Therefore, in order to try and stomp it out the rumor, he falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments these people called Christians 
who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name, Christ, was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again. Not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. And then Tacitus writes this, Therefore, first those were seized, and so Nero needed somebody to blame because he was likely behind the burning of Rome, where 13 of the 17 provinces were literally burned to the ground. Uh, most of Rome was built in wood, and so, um, and so here he is. He's got, he's got to blame somebody. And so he blames the believers. And so Tacitus writes, here's some of the things that he did to the Christians. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith. And then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for the hatred of the human race. And so they went to trial, Christians did, but they were convicted, not of burning of Rome, but, okay, these are crazy people who gathered together, they worshiped, they had these love feasts, which was just the Lord's Supper and then coming together for community and all these things, and, and they, they were accused of hatred for the human race. And then he writes, And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. And they were nailed to crosses or they were set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, Nero used them as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for the spectacle and he performed a circus game in the habit of riding in a chariot, missing with, mixing with the plebes and driving about the race course in his gardens. And he would impel believers alive and he would put oil on them and he would light up the gardens and he would get in his chariot and he would ride around like the emperor was coming among the people to be um, good to them. And even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good but on account of the fierceness of one man. So eventually people began to see uh, Nero is just an evil man who's directed his wrath at these people who are called Christians. Now I wanted to share that with us this morning because we're having these final thoughts on suffering in regard to faith. Because for the first 300 years, the church existed under great persecution of the emperors. And you know what the church did in those first 300 years? It thrived. They couldn't crush it. Rome could, Rome's arm and all of its might and all of its extent and all of its power and all of its military and all of its laws and all of its stuff could not crush the church. The church thrived. It wasn't until Constantine in 313 A.D., legalized Christianity or the worship of Christianity that Christians could worship, that things began to change. And what happened eventually was the government, through the legalization, kind of melted together with the Catholic Church. And so you had this one thing. And guess who became the greatest persecution from that point on? The church did. If you didn't believe in the dogmas, didn't believe what we said, there was great persecution that was directed to those who didn't believe in the church. And here's the reality for us. As Peter's been writing to these people, and he's going to finish it up today, and he's going to say, listen, the reality is this. The church thrives and is alive because the Spirit is inside of us and is moving inside of people. And so as he finishes these last thoughts, we, we need to keep this in mind. These are believers 
who, who are not just having words said against them, and they are having words said against them. They've been maligned. They've been slandered. Peter has written about that. But these are people in danger of their very lives. And so, though they're wrestling with, okay, I've come to Christ. I don't, I don't really get why I've come to Christ. And this reality has come to me, but it has come to me. And so, they're wrestling with it. And so, Peter has, has told them over and over, seven times now, suffering is a reality for your faith if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. All right, let's look at the text this morning. Verse 12. And we'll go through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. All right, let's walk through this today. Y'all ready? Good stuff today. All right. First thing that I think is important, twice in First Peter here, he uses the word beloved. He uses it five times in Second Peter, and we'll eventually get to Second Peter probably, I don't know, end of this year, or we actually really are not that far away. Mark asked this week, how much longer in First Peter? Six or seven weeks, and we'll be done with First Peter. And then I think we're going to do Jonah. We're going to take a pause and do an Old Testament book. So many great things in Jonah. And then we'll get into Second Peter. We haven't done anything in the Old Testament for a while. And so anyway, um, <clears throat> this word beloved is a very interesting word. So again, he's writing to persecuted believers. And he wants to remind them, listen, the world hates you. Nero hates you. You are being blamed for all kinds of things. Abominations, uh, sexual orgies. The church was literally... Um, accused of sexual orgies and things of that nature, which was not the case, but there just was so much, un, so much misunderstanding in regard to um, how the pagans viewed the church in the first century. So there are all kinds of things. So Peter says, listen, listen, the world doesn't get you. It doesn't get us. It doesn't get Jesus. And so you, you have suffered. You know the reality of this persecution. But I want to remind you, you are the beloved of God. And that's the first thing I want to see this morning, that there is a security in the midst of suffering for our faith that comes that though the world rages and though the world persecutes, God loves his people and he is for his people and his presence is with his people as they suffer for their faith. So these faithful followers of Christ, they had lost a lot. They were living in turmoil. They were unsure of the future. Persecution for some of them seemed really foreign to them. Um, some of them have been shaken with their, their new faith in, in Christ, and so they were shaken. So he wants to remind them that in their current life status, that they are the beloved of God. This word beloved means this. It is a word of tenors, a word that tells of God's infinite and divine love for those who are his. And so he just starts off in his last words of communicating about the reality of suffering he says this i want to remind you you are the beloved of god so beloved beloved listen to me you belong to god you don't belong to the world and there is a security that comes that you are in his hand that you are his and so you can trust in him if you look at the letters of the new testament they are written from a tender heart you look at paul's words he writes over and over may grace and peace be multiplied to you grace and peace to you I um, mean, just, there's just a tenderness that is there. And it is written to believers to be reminded that we are marked by God if we are His. And so there's a security that comes to us in the midst of things that is really, really important. A great, great love. And you and I need to keep in mind as well that 
that, uh, I don't want to say that. Let's do this. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. So I had a really great thought. I'll share it another day. I'll leave the intrigue. Okay, second, go to 2 Timothy to your left, chapter 4. I'll save it for next week. There's the flip side of this as well about, about the security and suffering and, and uh, being the beloved and being in community with one another. And, and I, I think we would, we, we would fail to not look at this. And so Paul is writing. This is the last known letter. Now, if he wrote another letter, we don't know about it. This is the last known letter that he wrote. He is in Roman prison. And look what he says here, 2 Timothy 4, 9. He's writing to Timothy, the second letter, and he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius, I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, listen to what Paul says, no one came to stand by me but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. In 17 he says these great words, but the Lord stood by me. Everybody else deserted, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, most likely referencing what? Being thrown to the lions and being killed by the lions, most likely referencing that. Some people believe um, that Nero's the lion's mouth, but likely Paul's in Rome, the being thrown into the Colosseum with the lions is a, is a likely thing, what he's men- mentioning there. And look at 18. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and look what he'll do. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, and to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we move on to the next point, I want to talk about security and suffering. So there's a beauty to know that we are the beloved, and there's a community where we support one another. But is Jesus worth it when you are in a Roman prison and nobody's standing with you? And Paul would say, yeah, nobody was with me. I had to make my own defense. Nobody was there. But I knew this, that as I made my defense, the Lord was standing with me and it was worth it. And I know this with him, that though the suffering may come, and he just before that talked about, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now what is in store for me is the crown of righteousness with the Lord himself will give me on that day. So he gets this and he knows it, that it's good to work through suffering in community with one another, support, but then there also may be a time in your life where you have got to stand alone in regard to this. Um, I don't think we have shared this with you. We've shared it with the students. Um, this church that we helped build in Nepal, um, and we were there for five days doing ministry there. After we left, a few weeks later, the church leader got called into the police station. Uh, the church leader is 17 years old. And he got called in, and they interrogated him. Like, why do you bring these foreigners in here with this foreign gods or foreign god? And, uh, and then they were also upset about the Nepali believers that came. Not only did he have to, as a 17-year-old, do that, but then he was called to what you and I might call Collin County Sheriff's Office, kind of regionally away, and he was called in there, and he was interrogated there. 
And they said this to the 17-year-old believer, um, great, great, we love him to death. And he just said to the police station where he lived, and he said to the, to the sheriff's office, he just said this, um, I'm a believer in Jesus. And he just confessed his undying love for Christ, his faithfulness to Christ, and they let him go. And that church there is growing weekly in the midst of persecution. You and I, we've talked about this, and I, and I, I, I don't want to get on us too hard because it's some, in some ways it's not our fault. We just we don't understand other parts of the world because we just don't we don't have to make decisions because of pressure from government and other things of that nature. But there are believers who do, and we may in our lifetime, or our kids or grandkids may have to in our lifetime. We don't know that. Let's don't be so naive that we think America is just gonna man. It's just gonna. <laughs> be this this what we've known it to be that it's just gonna it's gonna get rescued back to there we don't we don't know that it could be that but let's don't be naive enough to know that there may come a day here that even though jesus and thoughts of the scripture permeated the foundation of this nation that it's going to just be that way forever and ever and ever we're seeing the crumbling of that um in our lifetime all right let's go to the next thing so there's a security and suffering we stand together. We're the beloved of God. He loves us. He cares for us. And even sometimes when there's nobody standing with us like Paul did, there's a security there because Jesus is standing with us even when we're alone. So he says, the next thing in verse 12, look what he says there. Twice, if you go back to First Peter, and I'll go back to First Peter, twice there, he says something kind of of the same idea. And so he says this, He says, Beloved, do not be surprised. In the last part of verse 12, he says, As though something strange were happening to you. So here's point two this morning. Suffering for faith is not to surprise the believer or seem strange to the believer. It should be something that we just understand. This is a reality for those at times who walk with Jesus. And so the call is, that we would set our mind on God. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, this is just after the confession of Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day rise. So Jesus began to tell them, we're going to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer. The religious leaders are going to be behind it. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And Peter doesn't like this idea. So it says this, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, You get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are setting them on the things of man. The mind of man wants comfort with faith. The mind of God sometimes is suffering, struggle comes connected to faith. So we just read there, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. Peter's like, no, you're not. Um, We're not going to allow this to happen. And now he writes this letter, so he has a problem with the suffering Jesus, and now he writes this letter, it's been many years, and he can't think of being a believer without connecting what with it? Suffering. 
He knows it to be a reality. Where before he had trouble that there would be suffering connected to Jesus, now he knows this is just the way it is for those who come to know life, who come to know forgiveness and joy in this relationship. He now affirms that it's not a strange idea, but it is part of life and walking with Jesus. He can't imagine faith without it. And in any godless society today, we are a thorn in the culture because we speak against the culture, we live against the culture, there's a standard, and we don't buy into the silliness and the futility of the world's ways. And so the world has a problem with that. And our lives, by what we do today, how we live tomorrow, and all those things are an affront to the world's system. And so those who are in love with the world are going to naturally not get us, and there's going to be some pushback in regard to what we believe and how we walk with God. This is not anything new. You will be reminded of this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So they're just going to make up lies and it's going to be false. But then he says this, listen to what Jesus says, echoes what Peter says here. Rejoice and be glad. Not that, oh man, thank you, will you beat me one more time? It's, he's not saying... Let's get excited about the thing. But what he's saying is this. We rejoice because when that happens, we are identified with Jesus and what happened with him. And what do we want to be more than anybody else? We want to be like him. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and I want to know what it's like to share in his sufferings. So Paul didn't want to be absent of a life of just comfort, but he wanted to know the depth of of what Jesus experienced in regard to the trust and walking with the Father, even in the midst of suffering. So here's what he says. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And they persecuted, by the way, Jesus said, the prophets just like this who came before you. And this idea here that suffering is not to surprise us, It's not to seem strange to us. Puts a dagger into the heart of the prosperity gospel that says that you and I will just can just speak to our problems and they disappear. Have you ever tried that before? Just lunacy. Things sometimes remain, and you know why they remain? Because they force us to do this. God, I'm calling out to you. I'm still wrestling with this. And it forces us to our knees. And in our weaknesses, he becomes strong. And so therefore, we glory in our weaknesses, Paul says. And we'll read that hopefully here in a little bit. But the prosperity gospel just says, you're not going to have any problems. And then Jesus comes along and says, listen, you're going to be persecuted just like the prophets. You need to get this. This is, this is the reality. And don't let it surprise you. Don't let it seem strange to you. Because it is the reality of what is going to happen. So let me just remind us of some biblical evidences of this. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel bring their offering. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is what? It's rejected by God. So obviously there was some kind of standard that God told them that when you come to worship me with the fruit of the land and the, of your crops and then your livestock, there's a way to you to come to do it. Cain came and he didn't do it right. And so God rejected it. He's sad and he's mad and he's upset about it. And he's in the field with his brother. And he kills his brother ultimately because he doesn't like that God had approved 
and accepted what his brother had done and that God had rejected what he did. And he's angry about it, and so he attacks his brother. From Genesis chapter 4 until this very moment in 2018, faithful believers of God have lost their life and they've been under persecution because they love righteousness and obedience and they love doing things the way God has set it up. So again, I just want to, I'm not a good mathematician. I don't know how many thousands of years it's been since Genesis 4. It's been a lot of them. And the same thing has happened to God's people that they live for righteousness' sake and they are persecuted for it. So again, in 2018, we American Christians who love our comfort, why are we surprised if somebody says something to us or there's an attack to us? We should not be surprised. This is a Western mindset that Christianity is connected to comfort. All over the rest of the world, Christianity is connected with a cost. Right, Bree? You know this where you work. There's a cost that is connected to walking with Christ. So in Genesis 4, here's some others. John 15, 18. Jesus himself on the eve of his greatest persecution. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the count of my name. They don't like my name because they do not know him who sent me. Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James, half-brother of Jesus, chapter 5, verse 10. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The Apostle John in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So this is not a new theme. It's a theme that's a reality. We don't see it and sense it here where we are. But I just want to remind us that Christianity provides no immunity from ridicule concerning and persecution of our faith. It is to be seen not as a surprise. It is to be seen as a reality, as natural. This word in the last part of verse 12 there, as though something strange were happening to you, means this. It means it is not accidental or by random chance. So when it comes, it's passed through the sovereign hand of God to us in our lives for the purpose of seeing us refined to be more like Jesus. All right, let's look to the next thing. Point three, sufferings purifying test. So go back to verse 12, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So there's a purifying test that is connected with this. Two things here. Y'all remember the song, Refiner's Fire? Do y'all remember the Christmas song, Refiner's Fire? Purify my heart, let me be as gold. It's that idea of that when the test comes in regard to our faith, are we going to continue to trust? And as we continue to trust, there's a purifying fire. This word purifying here or this fiery trial in the Greek means furnace, like what you heat up to purify silver and gold. Gold's heated up, it is melted, 
and the impurities separate from the purity of the gold. That, that impurities are wiped away, they are taken away, and there's a more pure gold and silver that is there. So here's what Peter is saying. Beloved, you are loved by God. But I want to remind you, you're a little surprised, but don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So there's two aspects of this. And he says that the fiery trial that comes to test you. So one is this. The trial comes, the trial comes, the suffering comes for faith as a refiner's fire to, to bring deeper faith. It's a fire that results in worship. I read it a while ago. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purification brings a worshiping response. Secondly, it tests the quality of our faith. It tests the quality of our faith. Peter says that this is a test that comes to to reveal whether or not there's an authenticity connected to our faith. And by the way, a compromising believer, a lukewarm believer, is never going to be tested like this. Because nobody's going to look at them and go, oh, you're passionate about Jesus, I'm going to persecute you. Satan's not threatened by lukewarmness, he's not threatened by a compromising believer. But the persecution's going to come from those who take it seriously. And there's a couple of things that are, are connected to the test that are important to see. And first one is this is that the love of Christ is seen in the test by our willingness to suffer for the one that we confess to love. So as we suffer in our confession of Jesus and we continue to trust in Him and love Him and worship Him, it shows our deep love for Him in that test. And secondly, the love for Christ is seen in the test and the suffering is seen in the test based on the way the world responds to us. And so because the world goes, I don't get you, and so I'm going to say this about you, I'm going to malign you, it also provides an authenticity and a testing measure that reveals there's a true love that we have for Him. So the test becomes a proving ground when it comes for the quality of our faith and allows us to see whether it is genuine or not, and it brings a purity. All right, point four this morning. And this is one that was a big deal to the Apostle Paul. Sharing in Christ's sufferings. Look at verse 13. He's going to use some words that are foreign to us. Twice he's going to use the word rejoice. Once he's going to use the word glad. And I, it echoes, Peter had come to know this to be true. So he says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice And be glad when His glory is revealed. So there is a joy, there's rejoicing that comes in the sharing of Christ's suffering. So let me ask the question, what does it mean to share in Christ's sufferings? Now this does not mean that when He hung on the cross, it's called the, big Bible word here, expatiary sacrifice of Christ where He suffered for sins. We don't suffer for sins. That only He could do that on the cross. So what is our sharing in the sufferings of Christ? What does that mean? It's the same idea. We read it two weeks ago, Acts 9. Acts 9 was two weeks ago, right? Uh, whenever it was, we're reading in Acts. 
The Apostle Paul is going to Damascus to persecute believers. The glory of Jesus shines. He's knocked down. Jesus speaks to Paul and says this. Why are you what? Persecuting who? What does he say? Me. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting me? So the idea is this, that we share in his sufferings when we are persecuted because of our faith in him, that we are being persecuted for righteousness sake that is connected to Jesus. We are not suffering for sins, but we are suffering because we are connected to his name. And so the sharing of the sufferings of Jesus is not bearing the sin of the world, but it is that we are suffering for righteousness' sake. This word share, incidentally, comes from the same Greek word of koinonia. Does anybody know what koinonia means? Anybody remember? Ryan, what does it mean? You remember? He doesn't know? It's a f- Ryan, you know everything. <laughs> it means fellowship. It means fellowship, sitting down together, connecting with one another. Watch this. Look what, look what he says. Rejoice when you have fellowship with Christ as you suffer for His name because there's a community and a connection with Him as you suffer for Him that is unlike anything in the world. Because you know why? Nobody gets the suffering more than Jesus. He suffered for sins and He suffered for righteousness' sake. And so He gets it when we suffer for our faith in Him and the count of His name There's a beauty that's there. And so Peter here says this. He says, listen, I'm not telling you to say, hey, drive another sword through me. But what he's saying here is this, is if the world hates you to the point that they are thrusting swords through you or they've tied you to the stake and they're going to burn you and you're going to die, there's a rejoicing that comes that says this, that there is such an authenticity to your faith that it has led to death just like Jesus' life was led to death. And so therefore, you are sharing in the same kind of suffering with Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul said this, and I, had a, I don't know how many times I read this. It's in Colossians chapter 2. And I looked at it this week, and I'm like, what, what in the world? So I had to do some this Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Church in Colossae, and in my flesh, listen to this, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if you just were to stop there, you could get some heresy going right there and just build some things. So what is he saying? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Because when he was on the cross, did he not? He, it says this, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore in his body on the tree our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But Peter shares something a little bit further, so we can't stop there. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions, so it's not saying that something on the cross was not adequate enough. Here's what he says. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what he's saying is this, is that until Jesus comes back, you know what's going to happen in the church? suffering so it's not that it's empty it's just the reality that it just hasn't been completed yet and believers are going to continue to suffer 
And so Paul just says, listen to what he says. I rejoice in my sufferings for you, church, because you're not having to do this. I'm doing it. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of Christ's body, the church, that is, the church. So Colossians 1.24 is not speaking about that in the atonement, that in Christ's death, that there was something lacking there. But he's just saying this, there's going to continue to be persecution of Christians as Christ carries forth the building of his church until he returns again. So suffering for faith is to be seen, watch this, according to Paul, rejoice twice and be glad is to be seen as a privilege, not as a form of punishment. That's what Paul says and Peter says. This is not a punishment. This is a privilege that you are identified with the majesty of the suffering Messiah who isn't a God who stayed up there and just barked out orders, but he came here and he took on flesh and he willingly went and laid down his life on the cross. Listen to this, Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to what he says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You suffer with him, guess what also comes? There's a glory that comes with that. Suffering, maintaining faith, there's a glory that comes with it. Here it is, Philippians 3.10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul was just willing to say, if I've got to die like him, I'm willing to do it because I want to know the depth of knowing him even by being identified with him by suffering for righteousness sake. Jesus went to the school of obedience. You know how he did that? Through suffering. Remember this? Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In case you didn't get that. School of Obedience with Jesus, Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we go through the same school. And there's a depth of faith that is connected with that. Prime example of this is in Acts chapter 5. Apostles are arrested. Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, listen, guys. Let's just not do anything about this right now. Because remember, there were some guys that came before and they stood up and, and, and their, their little thing didn't last long. It just kind of died out. If this is of God, it's going to last. If it's not of God, it's just going to die out like the other thing. And so they decided to beat the apostles. Um, I did some research on that this week. Uh, what does it mean? It just says, and they beat them. Um, the majority of the reading that I read is, is if you remember the 40 lashes minus one that was common Jewish practice that Jesus himself experienced. Many people believe that that's what happened. So just listen to this for a moment. Don't hit me once. (laughs) I'm not volunteering for that today. But 39 times. Listen to this faith. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in case you don't think they were joyful by being identified with Jesus, the very next verse says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease 
teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. So the persecution shut their mouths, right? <laughs> no, it just emboldened them. And so there's a, there's a passion that comes in the suffering that produces a depth. And he says this, so there's a gladness in the suffering. And then he says, there's a glory of sharing in his suffering. So he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If we share in his suffering, we will share in his glory. Listen to this, 1 John 3, 2 familiar beloved we are children now gods and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and so there's a glory that comes in the midst of the suffering that ultimately that when christ is fully revealed when he returns that we will be like him so here's a few more perspectives romans 8 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul said it in 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing or his coming see ultimately it's our knowledge of where we're going that allows us to know that there's a confidence to continue to trust him here because after this life is over it gets way better no more wrestling with sin anymore no more persecution no more heartache no more neck ache no more back pain no more sickness no more whatever it is we are with him And God is using suffering for faith to conform us to Christ. So we can say this, that suffering does not work against us. It does what? It works for us. Because it conforms us to be more like Christ. It is accomplishing exactly what God wants it to in our lives. To bring us to the place to be the kind of spiritual Christians that God wants us to be. And also kind of brings us to a place where where we see this. That though I am getting stronger, when I recognize that he's the one doing the work, I realize that I really need to be weaker because in my weakness, then he works and he does this great thing. Paul said it like this. I can't wait to meet Paul. I, I, you know, I don't fully know what heaven's going to be like. We, you know, we get this idea, but I'd love to, I'd love to be able to talk to that guy. <laughs> his faith is unbelievable in his perspective to just empty himself in such a way to have the impact that he had. Listen to what he writes. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, listen, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, okay, God, God said this to me, so I can just say, I don't like that. Or I can say, okay, I've got to adjust to what you said to me. So Paul adjusted his life to not trying to be strong. He adjusted his life to be weak. To recognize he didn't have the power to do any of this. So he says this, therefore, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to boast all the more gladly, there's that word again, gladly, happy, gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, watch this, we're going to talk about this in a moment, rest on me so I'm going to boast in my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ falls on me, rests on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with, listen to all this, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right. So then he says this. We got to finish this up. Do you think maybe one day we could just go on and, until the second service shows up and just, we should do that sometime. <laughs> they just come in going, what's going on? Hey, just c- come and have a seat. Okay. All right. Then he says this, that connected to suffering, we are spiritually prosperous. So he says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. This word blessing is the word onazio in the Greek, and it means this, to denounce or heap insults upon. But then Jesus says this word blessed, this word blessed means this, it can mean happy, it can also mean the word prosperous. So he says, listen, if you're persecuted for your faith, you are prosperous. That is a prosperous faith because it's a faith that is trusting in Christ in the midst of great difficulty. And you are being identified with Christ. There's an identity with him. And so there's a happiness that comes with that, there's, that there's an identification of your life with Christ. So there is a richness and a certainty of the rewards of heaven. So he says this. Listen, if you're persecuted for the name of Jesus, Peter says, I want to remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're going to be blessed. You will be spiritually prosperous. That is a a life where God rests his presence upon the people. All right, we got to look at this. Here's the last one. Because, he says in 14, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And here's why. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let me give you three things about the spirit here and the spirit's role in the midst of persecution and suffering. The first one is this. I just want to remind us. The spirit resides in every believer. Listen to these. 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. 2 Corinthians 1.21 And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.4 He who has prepared for us this very thing who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and you were sealed with the promise of the Spirit. So the Spirit is on us. He's in us. He's a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. And then Peter here says this, that the spirit of glory now rests on us. And the spirit of glory echoes back to the Old Testament. What happened when the cloud came down and just filled the tabernacle? It was a representation of the glory of God. On the mountain, the glory of Moses went up and the, and the glory of God came down on the mountain and the people were down and they saw that and, and it speaks about it that this was the glory of God. Moses saw the backside of God and what did his head do for a while? It literally glowed. It gave off this thing that they had to put a veil around Moses' head because it was literally glowing. So the glory of God rests upon people and there's a glowing, there's an aliveness, there's an empowerment 
that happens to those believers. And that's what Peter's echoing here. Just like the Shekinah glory of God was evidently seen, that when we trust in Him in the midst of our persecution, there's a spirit of glory that rests on a believer. If you don't believe that that's true, then just read Acts chapter 6. Do you remember when Stephen was before the council and they looked at him and his face looked like what? An angel's face. There was something about him that God's spirit rested on Stephen as he was there. And it says this, And gazing in him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of the face of an angel. Stephen in that moment had such a peace, forgiveness, trust, and perspective as he stood before the council and God's spirit rested on him and there was a manifestation of something different. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be like that for us. This is an example, but sometimes there's just a, there's just a sense of his presence in the midst of difficulty and we just know he's there. So he's in us. He rests his presence on us. And lastly, well, he rests um, the spirit. He gives the spirit of glory. And lastly, the Holy Spirit will rest upon believers. This is a word rest that John Llewellyn can relate to. It's an agricultural word. It dates back to about 30 B.C. or 103 B.C., excuse me. And it described a farmer who gave his field rest from not planting as many crops one year to give, give the field a little bit of rest and allowed it some relief from the burden of continually having to produce a heavy amount of crops. And the word just means that. It means to give relief, to give refreshment, and a break from toil. So in the midst of the persecution, when it's really, really difficult, we've read this back in the Middle Ages, that there were believers while they were burning that just said, I continue to trust in God. And they're burning with another believer, and they're telling their person they're, they're burning with, let's play the man. Let's play the man, and let's continue our faith. There is a... Holy Spirit presence that rests upon believers in the midst of unbelievable persecution where there is a peace and there's a relief even in that moment that cannot be understood except the Spirit of God has done that. We know this word from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all who labor labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Same idea. Same word here. Rest and weariness. So the question today is, is he enough? Now, you and I, we're going to get in our cars and we're going to go eat and we're going to take naps this afternoon and we're not going to worry about anybody barging into our house today and arresting us and pulling us over because we've been to church today. Let me see if you've got a church bulletin in your car. We're not experiencing any of that today. So what is an application for us? Um, what, what can we take away from hearing all this today since we don't experience that? I think it's a... Personal opinion, I think it's a sin of us in the West where we have so much freedom to not pray for persecuted believers. That's wrong for us to not do that. We ought to be interceding for people who are literally today walking in the text of First Peter 4, 12 through 14. They live this today. And as we have our Fuddruckers today, we ought to remember... As we experienced that Coke machine at Fuddruckers, that's one of the greatest inventions ever. Don't you love that Coke machine? I love that Coke machine. We experienced all these great things. They don't see any of those things. And they're going to give their life today. There will be death today. 
of Christ followers in the world today. There will be arrests today for those who love Jesus. And we in the West should pray for them and intercede for them that the next moment they would be, if that's God's will, they would be in the very presence of Jesus. And even in the midst of their struggle, he would meet them right there in that prison cell. And he would just rest his presence, his Shekinah glory, right where they are. All right? One last thing next week, but let's pray now and we'll we'll respond. Um, We're going to sing the song, God is so good, that we've been doing for a few months now. And it's got a last line is, um, and if this life should bring suffering, Lord, I will remember, and I can't remember what the rest of it is, but anyway, but it's going to call us in the end to think about this. And let's pray as we worship today for the persecuted church.